Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Salman Rushdie, whose latest novel is Keyshot, that's Q-U-I-C-H-O-T-T-E. Earlier novels are 15 previous novels, Midnight's Children, Golden House, Shalimar the Clown, several others. There are four works of nonfiction, including the memoir, Joseph Anton. This particular book takes off a little bit on Cervantes' Don Quixote, and I understand that you began thinking about this when you were listening to an opera. Is that correct? Well, it came out of a couple of things. Yeah, one was that I, I'd listened to the, the 19th century French opera by Jules Massenet, which is called Don Quixote in the French pronunciation. And that made me start thinking about Cervantes. And also there was a, an anniversary, there was a couple, you know, about four years ago, which was about when I listened to this opera. It was the 400th anniversary of Cervantes. So I was asked to write something about him. And, and that meant that I picked up the book, the, the great book, which I hadn't done in, I don't know, since I was at college. And it got me thinking, because I had been thinking about a road novel anyway. It sort of reminded me of the granddaddy of all road novels, and that became a starting place. Did the road novel begin because you were thinking about what was happening in America today? Yeah, also that I felt that in the previous two novels, I had essentially almost entirely stayed inside New York City, and that I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to go go across America. And in fact, I at one point thought that it might not be a novel, that it might be an actual journey that I would take with my son and see what happened to us. But in the end, I just reverted to my, my kind of A game and thought I'll make it up instead. Did you do any kind of travel? Quite a lot of these are places that over, over the course of the last 20 years I have visited to some extent. There are one or two places in the book which are sort of fictional towns which are quite like real places. There's not a town in New Jersey called Beringer where people turn into mastodons. There's not a town in Kansas called Beautiful. But there are places like that, very like that. So, so I felt that over the last couple of decades, I'd seen enough of America to make it possible for me to, to do this journey as an act of imagination rather than as a kind of literal journey. We'll get to both Beautiful and um, Beringer in, in a little bit, but... When you finally decided you were going to do this, there are a couple of hints, obviously the name, toward Don Quixote, but it's also more a general kind of satire on uh, culture and politics as the original was. When you were looking at writing the road novel, what made you decide to actually tell two stories, the story of Keyshot and then the story of the writer writing Keyshot. Yeah, well, that happened, really took me by surprise in a way because I was not planning to do it. I mean, I, I had thought that um, 
that the, the book I would write would be about two sorts of journey. One is the physical journey across America, which would have a look at what's going on in the country. And the other would be a kind of inner journey, if you like, that Kishot takes in order to, as he says, make himself worthy of the hand of this famous woman that he's decided he's in love with and who he doesn't know. So he, has, he sets himself a series of tests in a kind of almost allegorical way. So there are those, those two journeys, and I, that the inner journey and the outer journey, which I, and I thought that was the book. And, and then I found myself writing this other material about the ostensible author of the Quichotte storyline. Truthfully, I've always slightly disapproved of that kind of fiction, the kind of books in which a writer writes about I, a writer, write about a, writes about a writer writing a book. And I've always thought, you know, don't do that sort of thing. And then I found myself doing it. And I was very uncertain about whether it should stay in the book. And I, I, I just thought, I'm going to see what there is here. And I reserved with myself the right to take it out. But then I found that the story of the ostensible author who calls himself Brother uses the pseudonym of Sam Duchamp and is a kind of second-rate spy novelist who's trying something different. Trying something different, he, he realizes rather quickly that he's in fact telling his own story, and he's, he's writing something which is probably more intimately his own story than anything he's done. And his own life problems are worked out through his, the story of Kishat. He has a son that he's estranged from that he wants to mend fences with. He has a sister that he believes he's done her wrong in the past, and he wants to see if reconciliation and forgiveness are possible. In the Kishat storyline, there are variations on both those themes, and those are very much like, in a way, the kind of emotional heart of the book, I think, and they don't all end the same way. Some of them end better than others. But then I thought, actually, I quite like the way these storylines are illuminating one another, and I think, you know, I'll keep them. I'll keep them both. <laughs> For you, Salman Rushdie, is there a parallel, not necessarily in this book, but in other books where you on some level are working things out in the same way with maybe different endings as characters yeah, in yeah, your novels? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think quite often, and even in this book, you know, because there are things in this book in which are very personal to me. One is the fact that the theme of opioid addiction that's, that's in the book. I mean, Kishat starts off as a, as a pharmaceutical salesman and is working for a person who we discover is a, a sort of opioid crook, a pharmaceutical entrepreneur who is, who is getting these very powerful drugs into the hands of people who, who don't need them. Anyway, the reason for my interest in that was that my youngest sister became dependent on these things, on, you know, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, and 12 years ago had a heart attack and died. And I, at that time, had no idea that how seriously dependent she had become. And it shocked me deeply. And so it became personal to me. I thought I have to, I have to find out about this stuff. And, and uh, I've spent, you know, on and off in the last decade, I've been diving into this. I mean, I've been looking at, you know, the Sackler family and the Johnson & Johnson thing and and actually, even the, the true life story on which my character in the book, Dr. Smile, is based, I've been following that story for a while. I mean, now suddenly it's in the news and people are going to jail and having to pay large fines. But for a very long time, it was like an invisible epidemic. And I, you know, became very 
concerned about it for this very personal reason. What's the true life story of Dr. Smile? Who's well, the person? Oh, well, there's the story about an, an Indian-American pharmaceutical entrepreneur. It, I mean, in the novel, the, my character, Dr. Smile, is based in the Atlanta area, but in, in the, the real person was elsewhere. He was sort of in the Chicago area. You know, he made a lot of money. He did very well. He had a good business. And he patented a variation of fentanyl, very powerful opioid. But because he was, to put it bluntly, um, a little crooked, he started bribing doctors to prescribe this medication, as they say, off-license, which means for things it's not intended to be prescribed for, and therefore became a billionaire and contributed a great deal to the opioid epidemic. And then just recently, he was arrested and tried, and I think he's in jail now. So you'd been investigating that, and suddenly those, that story came up in the actual headlines. Yes, I mean, what's so weird is that literally in the month of this book coming out, suddenly it's a huge news story all over the headlines. And, you know, for the last several years that I've been thinking about it, I mean, people have talked about it a little bit, but it's been very much kind of under the radar, this epidemic. And the thing that I came to feel about it, you know, yes, there's all this stuff about crooked, crooked doctors and manufacturers, but I came to feel that in some way this is a manifestation of the growing isolation in which many of us live. Where it's most prevalent is in small towns in the middle of the country. And you feel that somehow we've constructed a society in which apparently we have a million ways to communicate with each other now. But actually, we're all becoming more isolated from each other and lonelier. And this kind of thing, drug addiction, it starts off as a way of, as a form of solace, and then it, then it becomes addiction. So all of that was very interesting to me. And, and as I say, I've been thinking about this for, for a decade. And it's only now that I felt able to write about it. Salman Rushdie, there are several different areas. You tackle several different areas in this book. Uh, one of the key areas, particularly early on in the book, as I was reading it, I kept going, he's written a book about the rise of fascism. And then, of course, it becomes plainer in the town of Berenger, which is based on uh, Ionesco's Rhinoceros. Yes. Well, Ionesco's Rhinoceros was about the rise of fascism. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And Berenger... The, the main character, was the last one who did not become yes. a rhinoceros. Yes. And in this case, you made a mastodons. Yes, I just thought pink elephants, you know, would be funny. At what point did you s decide you would go on this little side trip about Ionesco? Well, really for the reason that you say, because I was began to feel that we're sort of there again. You know, um, I mean, he wrote that in the aftermath of, of the, of the mid-century, you know, rise of fascism, Know, Hitler and all that. What I thought is that what he's saying to us is that a moment can come in which the people who are our next door neighbors can overnight become monsters. They can become so alien from us that we can't talk to them anymore and they can't talk to us and they're frightening. And I thought, well, that may be somewhere quite close to where we live right now. And so I, I actually inserted this chapter because it's like a self-contained little moment in the book where Kishat and his half-imaginary teenage son, Sancho, take a detour off the road in order to spend the night somewhere before they drive into New York City. 
and suddenly find themselves in this, in this surrealist milieu. And I put it in because I just thought, you know, it feels, feels right to me to put it in because I feel that it's as accurate now as it was when Ionesco wrote his play. For me, it was interesting because last spring, uh, ACT in San Francisco did a major production of uh, Rhinoceros. Oh, did they? Yeah, and I interviewed the uh, director, Frank Galati, from Chicago, and we talked specifically about the fact that uh, Berenger or Ionesco was just watching his girlfriend. All of these intelligent people suddenly became someone else. Yes. They became the monsters. Exactly. So when I hit this, I'm going, oh, there it is. Well, you see, when I was at Cambridge, age 19, I was cast in a production of Rhinoceros. And I wasn't the lead. I wasn't Berenger. I was one of the other townspeople. But I was one of the people who had to turn into rhinoceroses. And you had to keep running on and off stage. And every time you're off stage, somebody sticks a bit more rhinoceros on you. And then you come back on stage. And, and I remember at that age, that tender age, being puzzled. What's this about? You know, and I remember asking the director, you know, what's this about? It seems like nonsense. And then he gently and kindly explained to me that it was about Nazism. And I thought, oh, that's clever. And it made me think about how you can use surrealism and, as it was then called, absurdism, to say something deeply real about the real world. And I thought I'd like that idea. And it was very, very a kind of shaping moment for the way in which I afterwards would think about writing. And, and that then played a role in all of your books yes. that have a fantastic element. Yes, yes. It was, it was a kind of important moment for me as a young person thinking about wanting to be a writer. There are other elements involving racism, in particular um, what happens when Keyshot and his son, quote-unquote uh, Sancho, wind up at various places and get accosted and in one particular instance almost shot. Yeah, one instance they do and one instance the writer does. Uh, Is that based on any event that you saw? Um, Not that I saw, but that I knew about. This brings us back to the imaginary town of Beautiful in Kansas. There's a real town in Kansas whose name I always mispronounce. I think it's pronounced Olefa, O-L-A-T-H-E. And a few years ago there, there was, you know, one of, the, one of the random shootings that happens every day in America. Some crazy guy went into a bar, and there were two Indian Americans, I think software engineers, at the bar, and he shot them. And one of them died, and one of them survived. And I remember reading this and thinking how absolutely meaningless this was. You know, he just shot them because they were there. Nobody said anything to anyone. There was no altercation. And so a version of that scene crops up in the novel. But because I didn't want to be limited, if you know what I mean, by the news story, I didn't want to put it in the real town, so I changed the name of the town because I discovered that the name of the town is actually a Native American word, which means beautiful. So I thought, okay, then I'll call the town beautiful, and it'll be very close to the real town, but it won't actually be the real town. So I'm not limited by the news story. In Don Quixote, of course, there's also Sancho Panza, who's a real person. What made you decide that this Sancho would be an imaginary person who becomes sort of real? Well, because I saw my Quixote as a lonely man, you know, somebody who'd never been married and always wanted a child. And so I thought his need to be a father would be a good way 
called the child to come into being, just out of his, out of his desperate need, he can will the child into being. And I, thought, I felt that was what my character wanted to do. You know? I, I mean, I never wanted really to exactly mirror Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. You know? and, and in many ways, they grow quite unlike each other. As you say, Sancho Panza is, is a real person. He's an adult. He's very earthy. He's very, he's very kind of physical. And my character, my Sancho, is a figment of, of Quixote's imagination who gradually acquires a kind of reality during the course of the story. So they're very unlike each other. And Quixote himself differs from Don Quixote in that Don Quixote is, is characterized by being melancholy. You know, he's called the Knight of the Dolorous Countenance. He has a long, sad face. Whereas my character, from the first moment that I started writing about him, wanted to be very cheerful. You know, he's called, his real name is he's called Mr. Smile, and he has a charming smile, and he has good manners of the old school and, and beautiful handwriting, and he is absurdly optimistic and hopeful. So that even as he goes through America, at what may not be the most hopeful moment in America's history, he, re- he retains a kind of sweetness and optimism about it. And then in his own quest for this talk show hostess that he's got obsessed by, which he calls falling in love with, he knows that he's absurdly out of her league. But he tells himself that it'll be fine, that if he can make himself worthy of her, love will find a way. And, and I wanted, to me, that those two things, the hopefulness of Quichotte, and the determination of his imaginary son to be a real person, that those were the driving forces of the characters. And so, I mean, Sancho, my Sancho, actually has a closer relationship to Pinocchio than to Sancho Panza. And there's Jiminy Cricket in the book, so... Yes, there's a, the, <laughs> or there's Jiminy Cricket's Italian original, you know, <laughs> because in, not in the Disney movie, but in the original novel Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi, there is a talking cricket, and he's called Grillo Parlante, which means talking cricket. And he speaks Italian. So I thought, I'm going to have the original cricket, not the Disney version. And, and of course, the cricket, as the cricket does in all those other examples, represents conscience, something in which Quichotte is very interested because he's a person for whom morality is very important. But Sancho, his teenage, his mutinous teenage child, is not really that interested in conscience. In fact, he keeps saying, he says to the cricket that conscience doesn't really get you very far in the world as it is, you know. Lies, crookedness, treachery, all that seems to work. Conscience doesn't seem to. So his relationship with the cricket is less close, if you like, than Pinocchio's. Uh, One other element that where it differs is that Keyshot is not really delusional. He knows every step of the way what he is doing. He knows he's obsessed. He knows that she probably, even though he would love to think her falling in love with him, he knows damn well it probably won't happen. And he knows that he's really smile. Yes, he does. He's not, he's not, he's not crazy crazy. He's just a little bit cracked. Once you created Sancho as his son... Was that the point where you began to see that connection between the writer writing the book? Yes, it was in a way. Uh, because, you know, for me, I really have always been very interested in love relationships which are not romantic love relationships. That's to say, 
uh, you know, in this novel, romantic love is represented by this obsession of Kishat for Miss Salma R, the, the talk show host he's obsessed by. But these other love relationships, fathers and sons, brothers and sisters, I think in many ways are as central in our lives and much less talked about. So I wanted that to be at the heart of the book. And in my own case, personally, you know, I've had, as a, both as a father and as a son, I've had very different experiences. Like my relationship with my father was bad for much of our lives. I mean, it was good when I was a little boy, and it was good again right at the end of his life. But for a lot of my adult life and a lot of his life, you know, we were very much at odds with one another and alienated from one another. And I wanted very much to be a different kind of father and to have a different kind of relationship with my children. And, and I do have, you know, so I have, I have the experience of both a bad father-son relationship in which I was the son and a much better father-son relationship, or two of them, in which I'm the father. So, so that's always been something I, I've thought about a lot. So the two variations in the novel, the two fathers and sons, you know, come out of very much my own personal interest in being a good father in what it was like to be a son. Salman Rushdie, the character of Salma R., whose mother and grandmother were also Bollywood actresses, I noticed something about reference back to Bombay from her, from the Smile family, and it reminded me a lot of you talking about what Bombay was like before you went off to uh, England. Yes. I've obviously fictionally visited it before in Midnight's Children, in The Moor's Last Sigh, even in, um, in the last two books, in The Golden House and in Two Years, Eight Months, Twenty Eight Nights. There are moments back there. This time I've, I've actually disguised it much less than in the past. I've actually used the real names of the neighborhood where I lived, the real names of the houses there, and, and in a way, this is a real portrait of that vanishing world, because the city is not like that anymore. It's very different. And so it's that Bombay is nostalgic even to people who still live in what is now Mumbai. You know, Kishat and his author are both people of Indian origin living in America. They're both people with a kind of nostalgic fondness for those early days of their lives. And I guess I have that too. But I'm also well aware that that really is the past. And even if you were to go to that city, it wouldn't feel like that now. Well, I think that's true these days of any place, including San Francisco, where you just look around and the skyline is suddenly completely different, or London for that matter. Yes, exactly. Both those cities are changing at quite spectacular speed. Some other elements in uh, Keyshot one of which is alternate universes and a character named Evil Scent, <laughs> which is kind of obvious, but he's not necessarily evil either. What made you bring in that, or was it just a push underneath it to kind of acknowledge old-time science fiction? There is that science fiction strand of the novel, and, and, and Evil Scent is the character at the center of that. But it's also that I wanted to say that a part of the thing that is revolutionizing reality at the moment is this extraordinary speed of technological transformation. Things that people be believed five minutes ago were completely fictitious, complete the stuff of fantasy and science fiction, are now things that get mass-produced and you can buy them for $100. That speed of change, and uh, I wanted to have 
a strand of the novel which explored that. So the evil sense character is a scientist entrepreneur who, who believes that he has or that his company is finding the technology which can link our Earth to other dimensions, you know, to parallel Earths, and that it may be possible to travel between them. And he tells anybody who will listen that our Earth is in such bad trouble that it's going to come to an end sooner rather than later. And so he recommends that everybody invest in his, in his company because he, can, he offers them the possibility of escape and a new beginning. I just thought I wanted that theme in the book, you know, that, that the world is changing so fast that it may be that the world that we are familiar with, that we think we know, is actually in a way ending and some other thing is coming into being. The pop culture references go throughout the book. And, you know, I was looking and I found a review of the book in The Guardian, which made the note that Quixote, the original, read a lot of romances and kind of lost his mind on that. And your key shot watched trash TV. But there were a few too many references that I just simply didn't get. Did you get everything? (laughs) Yeah, I did. I had to do a lot of work. (laughs) You know, reality television is not really my preferred TV viewing. But uh, in order to create the character of Quixote, who is, you know, has his mind turned by watching too much of it, I had to watch too much of it. Uh, And so I had to sit and, and do my due diligence and watch a lot of bachelors and bachelorettes and Kardashians and all that stuff. And and by the time I finished, I really thought my character was completely believable, because if you watch this stuff for long enough, it does damage your brain. You don't get weirder than Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars. I mean... <laughs> I have, I've, only seen, I've only seen a still photograph of that. And no, I think me I don't, too. I, don't, I think I don't need to see the clip. What it did for me, though, was, and I think it reflects in Key Shot in its own way, is how all of the strands of what we call reality now are surreal. The idea, say, of Goebbels being on The Bachelor, yeah, you know, it, it just transcends what we would even think about or what even a science fiction writer would think about. Yeah, and that's why one of the, somebody in the book says that, you know, the absurd may be the best descriptor of realism in our time, of reality in our time. You made mention... In, uh, in some of the promotional material that there's sort of a relationship with Joyce's Ulysses in this? Well, only that I was thinking about what happens when you derive a text from another text. Uh, and, and, and Ulysses is derived pretty precisely from the Odyssey. I mean, even to the extent that the individual chapters in, in Joyce's Ulysses were modeled on individual scenes from the Odyssey. And originally, Joyce gave each chapter a title which related to a passage in the Odyssey, like, you know, the Nausicaa or uh, whatever it may be, the, the Oxford of the Sun. Only at the last minute, he decided to take those chapter headings off and let the book stand by itself. But he modeled his book very closely on the structure of the Odyssey. I decided I didn't want to do that so much, you know, that I wanted to go on my own road and to have a much looser relationship with the, with the original. How much in going on your own road came out of just simply the writing of the book and how much was planned? Well, there was some of it was planned, of course, because otherwise you don't know what you're doing. But I have, as a writer, as I've gone on in, you know, in years, 
and in books, I've become more interested in trusting the act of creation, trusting what happens at the moment when you are writing. Because I feel that the way in which the, the mind works in the moment of creation, it doesn't work like that at any other time. And so in the moment of writing, you can find things that you can't find by planning them. And, and so I'm, I've become more willing to trust that. And then at least to trust it to the sense of letting my imagination have a kind of free reign and then becoming very skeptical and very critical of what's come up and deciding whether it's garbage or worth keeping. Is that kind of where the entire cyber spy business with um, the writer and his son came in? Well, once I had the imaginary writer, I wanted him to be an imaginary writer not at all like me. You know? so, so I made him into a genre writer. Actually, there's secretly, I always wanted to write a spy novel. I've often said I'd like to write a spy novel. This was the closest I've ever got to get. So I made him a genre writer, and that gave me a way of making him not me and, and making his personal story separate from mine. That was where it started. It was just as a kind of separation of that imaginary writer from this real writer. There's also reference to two science fiction stories in particular, one by Catherine McLean, who died very just, recently. Just a few weeks ago, yes. And the other, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, the, the nine, nine billion, billion names, names of, of God, God, yeah. And these are both stories I read basically when I was a teenager and hadn't really thought about much since. In the kind of miraculous way that the mind works, there were a couple of moments in the book when I was kind of stuck you know, and didn't quite know how to solve certain problems in the text and how to take the story forward in the way that it needed to go. And these stories cropped up, and they, in very different ways, told me what to do. In particular, the Catherine McLean story, Pictures Don't Lie, in a way showed me the way to the ending of the book. And I had been very concerned about it because I, for a long time, didn't know how to end the book. I knew that in order for the book to be completely satisfying to the reader, the two storylines had to gradually come closer and closer together, begin to merge and overlap, until by the end of it, I, would, I thought the reader should think, oh, well, they've kind of been the same story all along. You know? And I wanted that to be the feeling at the end of the book, but I, for a long time, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to get there, and it worried me. And then, as a kind of miracle, this old, old science, this more than this sort of 50-year-old science fiction story popped back into my head and told me how to do it. The um, character of Keyshot also talks about various valleys, and I looked that up. That's from Baha'i? Uh, no, it's not, actually. It's from, there's a 12th century Persian text, which is the sort of Persian equivalent of the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, and it's called The Conference of the Birds. It's a book that I've used before in my work. In fact, my very first unsuccessful first novel, Grimus, was also based to some degree on the Conference of the Birds. It's a narrative poem about 30 birds who set out to look for the bird god. And in order to get to the god, they have to go through seven allegorical valleys of purification. So I, I essentially stole the seven valleys and gave them to Kishat as his way of structuring his quest of becoming worthy, of becoming in the way that the knights of the round table knew that, they had, that in order to reach the grail, they had to be worthy of the grail. You know, Kishat believes that he has to be worthy of Miss Salma, uh, and he goes through these valleys, of, of which he sees as valleys of self-purification. 
What was the easiest character to write and the hardest? The easiest character was the wicked character, Dr. Smile, the opioid crook, was actually the one I had enormous fun with. I just I became very fond of him because he was unredeemably crooked. And he was funny, I thought, so I liked him. The hardest character to make real, because he starts off not being real, is, was, was Sancho. That took the most thinking about. One of the things that's really pleased me is that many of its readers have said that that's the character that they have really been most deeply attracted to, the character of Sancho. And I think actually in Don Quixote, Sancho Panza is a character that many people who read Don Quixote identify with more than they identify with Quixote. Well, it's also true with Man of La Mancha, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also true. And, in the, and of the Terry Gilliam film and all the one million adaptations of, of Don Quixote that they have been. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, I have not seen it. Did you get a chance to see it? No, but what I did see was the documentary he made oh, that was about, great, yeah. about failing to make Don Quixote, <laughs> Lost in La Mancha. Uh, and actually, when it was shown at the Telluride Film Festival, I was asked by Tom Luddy, who runs the festival, if I would have a conversation with Terry Gilliam about the film. So we, so we sat in a room and talked about Don Quixote for an hour. And when was that in relation to the writing of the book? Oh, many years, five or six years before. So you, you actually knew when you went into that that in the back of your mind, yeah. Terry Gilliam was sort of there yeah. because yes. his, his Don Quixote is doing what yours does. Yes, I know. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, if I, could, if I could ask Cervantes a question, what would I ask him? And, and I thought, well, I remember that Cervantes himself was so enraged at the imitation Don Quixote that was published by this writer called Avellaneda, loathed him. And in fact, the second part of Don Quixote is full of references to this spurious, appalling person. Um, I just thought I would like to say to him, how do you feel about the fact that in the next 400 years, there have been like a zillion imitation Don Quixotes, including mine? And is that something that you feel flattered by, or is it something that really annoys you? And I suspect it would have been the latter. I keep thinking of a story, I think it was called Don Quixote by Pierre Menard. Yes, yes, <laughs> the Borges Don Quixote, yes. <laughs> Salman Rushdie, changing the, the subject, I went to IMDb and it said that there's a TV series being developed for Midnight's Children? That was true. Sadly, I think it's, it's hit a rock. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know if I asked you about what it was like working on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, did you write your own copy on that? There is no script. Oh, really? It's complete. It's not. When I say it's completely improvised, it means there is no written script. It's what would be called, I suppose, guided improv. That they'll, you know, they'll sit you down at the table in a restaurant, as I did with Larry, and they will say, "Look, in this scene, here's what's supposed to happen, roughly speaking." We have to get from here to here. But how you do it is up to you. Did they contact you and yes. say, hey, we want you on the show? Yes. I mean, I had met Larry David just a couple of times. I didn't, I didn't know him at all well. And he got in touch through my agents, and then we exchanged phone numbers, and I spoke to him on the phone. He told me, he said, we're doing this, and do you want to be in it? And later, he admitted to me that they had no plan B. <laughs> No, I remember watching the show and going, oh, wait a second, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they said, you know, if you had said no, we wouldn't have known what to do. Here's a question that I've asked over the years various people in politics about when they go on 
talk shows and find themselves with, you know, conservatives, pundits, people like that, I would assume over the past few years, you've found yourself in green rooms with people like that. Um, what is your take? Do they actually believe what the crap that they're saying? Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I mean, I, I tell you an example of they don't. I mean, I remember being on Bill Maher's old show, Politically Incorrect, and one of the people who was on was Ted Nugent representing the NRA. And on the show, he, of course, the, the, the other people on the show were, were pretty anti the NRA position. And, and he would abuse us on the show. He'd say, you people, are, you're, you're wimps, and you don't believe in the American Constitution, and etc." The moment we were off stage, he came over and invited me to his place in the countryside for the weekend. <laughs> well, what happens when you see one of those people? Um, I mean, I don't know who you've actually seen on Mar or any other show. Yeah. And... Do you kind of look at them and go, I wonder what's going on in their brain? Yeah, well, I think they're playing to, they're playing to um, what they see as their base, you know. I was on real time one time with Most Deaf, who backstage, before and after the show, was the most charming and intelligent and pleasant person you could wish to meet. During the show, he became a kind of 9-11 denialist, you know, the, who is this Osama bin Laden, does he even exist? Is he just a CIA plot? I was on with Christopher Hitchens on that occasion, and Christopher put him right. Yeah, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people, and generally, I remember asking um, Paul Krugman about that, and he said, he looked at me and said, I don't know, but he was on with uh, Tucker Carlson once, and he said Carlson just started talking and talking and talking, and after a while, Krugman realized the guy had no idea what, whatever he was saying. He was just babbling. Just logoria. I guess you've encountered that, and when you do encounter it in those situations, do you? What do you do? You just kind of ignore it. I back away. <laughs> it falls into my life's too short category. Salman <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rushdie. All right, now you've got this. You have mentioned in the past that when I ask you what you're doing next, you say I haven't thought about it or anything, but it's clear that by the time a book comes out and is on the shelves, you're hard at work on the next one. Is it that has, correct? It has been true for a long time now, and it's not this time. I realized that I've been publishing a book every other year for about a dozen years now, and that's alarmingly prolific for me because I'm somebody who has often taken five years, four years to write a book. This sort of novel every two years thing is... It's really different for me. I think that whatever that hot streak was, I have a terrible feeling it might just have run out because at this moment, I, I'm not writing anything and I'm not I'm not, I really don't have a clear idea of what to write next. And so it's not possible that there can be another, you know, for there to be a book two years from now, I'd have to be welling, well underway with it now. And I'm not. I think I have to take a break. One final question regarding politics. Kashmir is suddenly at the center of yes. conflict again. Um, do you see a way out of that particular? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's something that people have been asking since 1947. So it's it's, it's unlikely that I'm going to have the solution. What Kashmiris on both the Pakistani side and the Indian side have always said when anybody has troubled to ask them, which isn't very often, 
is that they have wanted autonomy. They wanted Kashmir for the Kashmiris. They, they're not that interested in either Pakistan or India. They want, they want to be themselves. And that's the option that nobody's giving them. And I mean, right now, I think there's two issues. There's one is the, the long drawn out issue of the politics of the situation. I think at the moment, we, you could even set that aside because the, the emergency issue right now is a, is a human rights issue. What's happening in, in the state is, an, by any standards, an appalling abuse of the citizens' human rights. You've had now for almost 50 days an absolute shutdown of all communication media, you know, blackouts, and an enormous arrival of military force, a lot of quite plausible accounts of torture. And this is not okay. You know, India has always prided itself on calling itself the world's largest democracy. And this is not how democracies behave. This is how tyrants behave. And whatever you think of the politics and the rights and wrongs of it, this is not how you treat people um, in what is supposed to be a free country. If there's any consolation to this, what we're seeing now is pushback against authoritarian regimes, whether they be proto-authoritarian like Trump or Johnson or actual authoritarian like in Turkey. No, I believe in that pushback. And I think you know that's one of the reasons why I, too, like Kishat, am at bottom an optimist. You know, and, and what I did with the character of Kishat was to take my often unjustified optimism that simply won't go away and exaggerate it, make it, make it crazy optimism. And so he, in a way, is an exaggeration of me. And, it, and you know, you were asking about Larry David. I mean, Larry David said to me about the character that he plays, that it's an enormous exaggeration of himself, that he is a bit like that, but the character is a zillion times more like that. Um, and I think Kishat is like that in the relationship to me. I think he's me enormously magnified. You've been listening to an interview with Salman Rushdie, whose latest novel is Kishat. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.